Hello and welcome to Additive Insight, your source for news, interviews and comment on the latest 3D printing and additive manufacturing intelligence, brought to you by TCT Magazine. I'm your host, Sam Davis, and today I'm bringing you the latest episode of our Innovators and Innovators series. This time, the R&D Engineering Manager of Osseous Fusion Systems, John Pahanik, sits down with Forward Medical's Director of Patient-Specific Solutions, Steve Zambrano, to talk 3D printed implants. Throughout the episode, the pair discuss the development of patient-specific and serialised devices, the key design considerations that need to be made for medical products, and the big opportunities within the implant space over the next 10 years. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more additive insight, head on over to tctmagazine.com where you can subscribe to the print edition of TCT Magazine and our weekly additive insight newsletter for free. I'll now leave you with Steve and John, who opens the conversation on the topic of AM adoption in healthcare. I think it'd be interesting for us to kind of talk about where's the um, additive manufacturing market right now in terms of suppliers. Um, like for me, the biggest gap or biggest uh, roadblock, um, I should say, that uh, that we're facing is post-processing. Oh, yeah. um, it's mm-hmm. a very, I'd say, pretty young, um, I don't know, I mean, additive obviously has been around a long time, but I'd say additive within medical, really, what, 10 years, 50, maybe 15 years now, if yeah. that? Oh, no, I mean, Zimmer was doing it back uh, in, in the 80s. Let's like say the adoption, 80s. yeah, the, the yeah. wider spread adoption, I would say for the past decade um, to uh, uh, two decades or so, we, we really started seeing that pick up. But in the 2010, we started seeing AM start going through. Um, and now if you go to some of our trade shows, if you don't have an additive manufactured product, you're kind of behind, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I guess what you're asking here is, you know, where's that industry headed to? And, and uh, I obviously have some of my own, um, thoughts in that, um, uh, as you already know, my, my role here, um, is the, uh, patient specific director. So I solely concentrate on patient specific devices and, um, how to create these, um, uh, one-offs for, individual patients that don't have an off-the-shelf solution. Um, But moreover than that, I see the vision of um, the medical device industry headed towards some more bespoke uh, products. Um, But that's not a golden bullet as well. Um, In order to be in this field and uh, kind of in the role that I have, I need to go ahead and understand what the constraints and the pitfalls are of that. Um, So while I do think that there are better outcomes for patient-specific devices that um, potentially easier um, uh, surgical operations for the clinical customer, um, I, I do know that along with that, there goes increased cost because of the uh, uniqueness of the devices. And then uh, almost entirely different supply chain um, uh, is necessary to run a patient-specific device compared to a serialized device. Now, there is a, a good deal of overlap, and the key is trying to figure out where you can overlap those um, and where you can't. Um, and, you know, we're working on it now, um, but um, I think there's still a lot of work to be um, had over the next coming years, not just in the design and manufacturing standpoint, um, there are a lot of design companies out there who are solely focused on some of these patient specifics. Um, uh, and in the manufacturing standpoint, there are suppliers who are um, starting to cater more towards these 
individuals and the advent of additive manufacturing lends itself very well to that but also on the regulatory side um, you know we see here in uh, the united states with the fda that uh, you know 10 years ago a patient specific um, uh, or a uh, uh, yeah patient specific regulations wasn't really ubiquitous. Uh, there wasn't a really great standard to follow out there or regulation around it. Um, but uh, since 2014 and on, we've started to see more regulations coming around uh, for that. And then vice versa, um, just in general for additive manufacturing as a whole. Um, when uh, I first started out, um, there was no 3D printed material um, ASTM standard. Mm-hmm. Uh, we in fact reference out old standards of casting uh, in order to go ahead and uh, do some of our quality work. What's the experience been for you, um, and where do you think the industry is headed now? Well, so I, I actually want to kind of potentially touch on um, or, or talk through the differences between uh, you know doing a patient-specific device versus a serialized device because I'm just personally really interested in that because that's a space that I don't have any you know sense of but I'll just talk briefly uh, uh, answer your question I mean for me um, you know I'm, I'm really a newcomer into this space as, as many people are but um, you know for me figuring out uh, so I was you know previously working for, for Globus and now and now Aussie is um, and uh, at Globus, they were just trying to get into uh, working on their hedron or hedron uh, system at the time. Um, and uh, so it was, it was a learning experience there, just kind of going on around me. You know, for me, I was a you know an associate engineer, um, and so I was working on you know kind of basic instrument stuff. You know, and adjacent to me, there were engineers working on the additive manufacturing aspect of it. And I got to go in the prototype shop and see them kind of figuring stuff out, you know, um, which was a great experience, you know, but I wasn't actually, you know, knee deep, you know, in it uh, until I got to Osseus. And uh, so I had to really figure out, you know, take what little knowledge I, I had from being in, you know, in that environment. And then bringing it to Osseus and had to really talk to a number of regulatory consultants and um, you know and trusting in our manufacturing partners you know our suppliers um, for what for what they had but uh, also just doing a lot of reading on my own um, you know just like trying to reach out to contacts in the industry it would be like hey what what is the deal here or you know was there something that I can look at you know reading you know just like hey how does <laughs> I mean, it sounds very basic, but like, how does a DMLS, you know, direct metal laser centering machine work? You know, like, what even is that, right? Because colloquially, we just call it 3D printing, right? right? And, and so it, it does sound um, perhaps basic for someone in the know, you know, for additive. But uh, I mean, you know, a few years ago, I had to really kind of start from scratch and figure out know, what was the deal. Um, I really liked in concept being able to design a device uh, that didn't have the constraints of um, you know traditional subtractive manufacturing, okay. right? There are clearly advantages to that, and you, you guys take I think more advantage of that than than most companies for sure. Um, and and trying to be able to design features and optimize, you know, not necessarily I say optimize, just take advantage of the ability to make some things uh, additively that you wouldn't be able to you know subtract I, th- I think that that is a shortcoming of some uh some companies additive devices that they'll just take 
their subtractive manufactured device and then say, oh, it's additive now, you know, <laughs> like, you know, it's like, uh, you know, it is what it is. But anyway, for, for me though, and, and, you know, I had to learn very quickly and, um, and through that learning process also, like I said, bring on new vendors and new trusted manufacturing partners, which I, I don't know, you'd have a better perspective on a ballpark, but there, there may be only like maybe two handfuls, I would say, maybe just one handful of really reputable um, additive manufacturing vendors for, you know, medical specifically. Yeah. Um, I mean, certainly those who have been uh, open longer than uh, a decade or two decades or so, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, it, you know, it's very interesting that um, you brought up the topic about uh, uh, converting, you know, a conventionally manufactured, subtractive uh, mm -hmm. manufactured uh, product and then converting over to um, an ad, uh, additive manufactured product. It, you know, that that really, for me, has been one of the uh, keystones of my career is being able to ask myself, is this a product that needs to be additive manufactured? Um, and the answer is not always yes. Um, you know, sometimes we have customers that will come to us and say, um, oh, well, I was in the surgery suite and I saw this product and I really want you to manufacture it additively. Mm -hmm. and, and the question is, well, why? What do you believe is the benefit that you see there? Are you looking at lightweighting structures? Is there a different form factor that we can produce using a 3D printing um, uh, process that we can't do in conventional manufacturing? Um, well, you know, what's the end goal there? And when you start to tease out some of those questions, the answer isn't always let's go the additive route. Um, it may be, let's keep it as is because here I'm being charged, you know, 82 cents per part. And on an additive manufactured part, I'm charged $2. Mm -hmm. um, now it doesn't always work out that way, but being able to answer those questions, I think is key to a successful career um, in people like our roles. Mm -hmm. um, uh, what type of algorithm or thought process do you usually ask yourself when uh, kind of going through that process? Should this part be additive? Should it be conventional? Should it be a combination of both? Well, I would say it's definitely not an algorithm. Uh, yeah. I'm definitely not that sophisticated, <laughs> um, but uh, I wish, no. Um, for uh, <laughs> flowchart A. Yeah, right. Oh, okay. If, you know, if not, then all right. And we go back to the beginning and now it's additive again. No, um, for, uh, there's actually one device that we're, we're looking at developing uh, or starting development on this year. Um, so I won't get into too many details of it, but it, you know, it's surprise, it's a spine device. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, we are taking a look at, um, just based on kind of working with our, our surgeon design team on, mm -hmm. okay, you know, what are their goals, right, obviously, and then um, being able to go from there, like, you know, for, for example, um, a lot of them do like the, how do I call it? I guess kind of the sexiness of, of additive manufacturing. You oh, know? definitely sexy. And, and, yeah. and, uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, in other industries, you know, it may not be looked at as a, a tangible factor, you know, and, and like, you know, how much, how much, how many dollar signs, you know, do you get out of, um, you know, that sexiness factor. And it's for sure a thing in medical, you know, oh, like, course, you know the look at the instruments, the feel. I mean, this, this is a, you know, whenever we're developing something, it's all about, you know, does this have a premium 
feel? Is this going to be differentiable from other products on the market, even just from a look, right? I mean, color palette comes into our oh, design process, yeah, absolutely. right? You yeah. know, I mean, you just, yeah. how do we colorize this and mm -hmm. what's the texture that we put on it to make it feel like it's a premium product? It's actually, it's funny you mentioned that. Osseus is a big deal actually to go with a high polish mm -hmm. on, uh, on every single product across the board to really make them shine. It's a thing. And yeah. it could be costly. But, oh, absolutely. You know, no, I'm, for sure costly. I'm sure you guys have looked at the cost benefit there mm -hmm. and found it. Hey, that seems to work out for us. When when a nurse or a scrub tech pop you know, your set open and they're like, oh, wow, like that, you know that you've done something significant. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and it's and it ends up being worthwhile. You know, at least you remember it, if nothing else. Right. Which, <laughs> yeah. which is saying something, you know, when, when you're a smaller player in this industry. But um going into, into that flow where you know they might say hey i really like the the thought or the theory behind you know let's say distributing surface load you know across the end plate right and being able to have you know continuous end plate contact great but we also want to have you know a big graft window or we really want to have you know it's like all right okay we got to compromise these things all right let's see i mean you, you guys obviously have your your solution you know? right um so I got to do it a little differently, but uh, um, you know, there's there's that piece to it, uh, and then also there's a piece of okay, is this thing going to expand? Is this thing going to you know do this? And then when you add, I mean, anytime you add moving parts, it just complicates, right? You know, it just increases the factors. order of magnitude of difficulty. Absolutely, right? yeah, and I think that's something that's underappreciated. But and then also at the same time, they want it to be pretty radiolucent. You know, <laughs> you're just like, oh god, you know, how do I how do I fit all this stuff in there? Yeah, where is this magical material? Right, and, and then you have to bring it back to, you know, how much can we sell this thing for? You're bringing up a couple of other points about, um, you know, factors that go into the design. Um, one factor that I think is often overlooked in the design standpoint is, um, you know, regulatory and or quality inspection. Mm -hmm. How do you advise, you know, some of your team on, you know, I guess the quality input that's needed for design. Oh yeah, so it, it's um, that is a, a whole topic. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, do we have enough time? Yeah, right. Um, but uh, no, I, I would just say that um, for me, like you know, I would say really I've only been waist deep in this, and maybe even head deep. Uh, I guess kind of more recently um, in additive over the last three years. Right. Um, and I've even seen a, a progression over the last three years in terms of how much knowledge uh, different regulatory uh, you know, consultants or agencies have uh, with additive specifically. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and same thing with the FDA. Uh, you know, I, we had a conversation about, you know, is, you know, hip, uh, you know, really you know, is the hip process that, you know, isostatic pressure, is that really applicable? Mm. Right. Um, and, you know, it, it's items like that, that I think people are maybe only just starting to question, but mm -hmm. at the same time, there are a number of agencies in the industry that don't even know what that is. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, they're just like, oh, a part comes off the printer. Like, that just, you know, that makes sense, right? You know, it's done. Right. Right. And they have really limited knowledge of, of manufacturing. I think that, you know, a number of, you know, conventional manufacturing, traditional manufacturing items have been taken for granted. Yep. Uh, because they've been around so long and because we have all these standards that now with additive, it's like, oh, we actually have to think, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and you have to be knowledgeable about this space in order to uh, intelligently um, 
regulate it, control it, come up with your PPQ, be able to, you know, because it's not the same, right? right? Uh, it, it's not necessarily equivalent. Um, and, and there are multiple parameters that, that you want to be setting. I know for certain that uh, the validation that, uh, you know, any number of companies did back over 10 years ago, um, had some gaps, you know, yeah. <laughs> and allowed some, so a little bit too much variation, you know? Yeah. yeah. And frankly, our, our validation process has evolved over the last yeah. decade. Um, you know, when, when you're mentioning HIP, um, you, when we started out producing additive manufactured products here at 4Web, there was no standard for additive manufactured products. Mm -hmm. So what we did is we utilized the standards that were available um, in the closest fit. And at that time, it was casting for titanium. And casting for titanium had a hot isostatic pressing process put into it. And that was to allow for um, some of the closure of some voids that might have been produced in a, um, a casted product, right? Now, since then, uh, and we figured, well, that's also applicable for you know, 3D printing or this additive manufacturing when we do powder-based um, either EBM or laser. Um, but, you know, since then we've kind of progressed the technology and now we're getting 99% densification on an additive manufactured part. And then we need to ask ourselves, well, is this type of um, process necessary anymore? And if it's, and if it's not necessary, how do we go ahead and um, uh, alter the precedent that we've already set mm -hmm. as an industry? Mm -hmm. And what information is enough to go ahead and provide um, to show that we're still producing safe and effective devices? Mm -hmm. and, and, and we as an industry need to be able to critically think about that problem, right? Well, you know, is this process, is this hipping process having an effect on um, our parts? Is it um, technology dependent? Um, is it part dependent? What are, we, what are the factors that we're going in? I personally believe that it, it is dependent and in some cases it may be necessary. In some cases it may not be. And in some, you may need a different type of heat treatment altogether that could potentially save you time and money. Mm -hmm. um, but we as you know, people in the industry need to question the process that we've implemented from decades past and see, are they still relevant, you know? Because um, really, I, I think it, we I think pretty much agree that it, really all you need is an annealing process. It's, it's really all that is, is necessary. Yeah. But, you know, how long is it going to take us to undo that, <laughs> that right. precedent? That What's the said? level of evidence that we yeah. need to provide in order to go ahead and push back that precedent mm -hmm. that we've already set? And same thing with passivation. Yeah. You know, it's like titanium automatically you know it oxidizes so, right it creates that oxide layer mm -hmm. um you know does does passive uh, passivating titanium really make sense and it's something that we haven't done on um traditionally manufactured products right um maybe you know someone can you know dunk it just to uh, for good measure but you really don't you don't need to do it um whereas it has become the standard for uh additively manufactured products right and then you you then go back and ask yourself, well, you know, if it's not actually passivating this uh, particular alloy that I'm working with, what is it actually doing? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and then, you know, one of the things that I've looked at is, well, when I passivate it, I'm 
you know, potentially removing manufacturing residuals. Mm -hmm. um, so it's basically not having the original intended function, but one of the byproducts of it is potentially helping us um, because, well, I know that I have manufacturing residuals. I do some, uh, you know, conventional machining mm -hmm. um, and there may be some coolant on there and passivation process tends to remove that. And does it help with loose particulate? You know, it's inside, you know, now that we're getting into these complex mesh structures, you know, I'd say that's a piece of it. But are you able to, or basically is a, uh, is a thorough ultrasonic cleaning process going to be doing more of that than the passivation? I would think so, right? Right. But, um, but yeah, no, it would be interesting to take a look at how much the passivation actually does help in that regard. And that goes back to, you know, adequate, um, controls on your cleaning validations and, um, you know, ISO 10993 and, you know, what that battery of testing there is, um, which I think, you know, um, we know those problems intimately because we've been in industry and been designing some of these products for several years now. Um, but as we try to go ahead and bring up the next vanguard of, uh, of engineers, um, you know, that's tribal knowledge that we need to go ahead and part on. Yeah, so I'd say really, I mean, right now we, if you want to call it that, I mean, in the additive space within medical orthopedics specifically, it we're kind of all, I think, acting on tribal knowledge because none of it's standardized. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know? Yeah, none of it's standardized yeah. or very limited amounts of it are, are standardized. And the what the FDA has indicated to us is extremely vague, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, you know, if we're trying to do a, a, or try to validate multiple vendors, you know, um, if we were doing that from a, a traditionally manufactured approach, it's like, okay, maybe we'll do a PPQ, uh, you know, validation, you know, manufacturing validation on, uh, on a couple vendors. Well, what does that mean? Okay, we'll do 100% inspection on the part. All right, so the material starts good, the hardness, good. okay, all right, great. You know, it means that you're up and running, right? This is, this is a quality product, we'll, we'll be good. Um, as long as you have the right, uh, you know, ISO certification, we're, we're good to go. With additive, um, I feel more comfortable, you know, certainly actually doing mechanical testing on the parts, mm -hmm. you know, when I'm validating a new vendor, which is something that really, uh, I'd say generally is not done uh, with uh, traditionally manufactured parts. You know, I, I wonder, I mean, I would, I would think at some point, you know, the FDA will add some type of requirement for that. But at this point, there's, there's no standard for trying to uh, validate multiple vendors and certainly not multiple machines with different parameter sets. Yeah, I, I, you know, there, there's some rough guidance um, that's been put out there um, that we tend to go ahead and follow, but it doesn't paint a complete picture. And I think one of the things that I've, you know, I, I feel strongly about is um, I obviously have some alliances to certain companies out in, in the industry, but um, I, I, you know, what I want to ask my peers um, in industry and what I love having these types of conversations with is we as an industry need to go ahead and uh, devote ourselves to, you know, taking a more active role in developing these standards, working with, um, you know, uh, our regulators and, 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 and trying to go ahead and impart our knowledge that we've learned through our, these tribal means through doing um, so that way we can help shape um, the next decades of additive manufacturing. And I, you know, I, I would love to go ahead and say that, um, uh, you know, you and I will take that on, but we already have a full work, 
load that's on our plate. True, right? That's true. <laughs> you know, um, I think you I think need to take it more on than four hours yeah, a day. Yeah, you know? yeah, no. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes, man. But um, I would say, it, you know, I, I do want to, uh, I guess, point out. I mean, okay, so I think that it's useful, or, or how do I put this? we acting on new devices, you know, us acting on new devices and developing new devices where I feel like that is us already kind of doing that. Right. Right. You know, when we're putting out more test data at the FDA, that's what we've talked about with the FDA is that, you know, as they're getting more of this test data, they're building a larger, you know, understanding of additive manufactured devices and from different manufacturers. I, I mean, they may start asking, in fact, they I know for a fact they are, um, asking kind of where the parts are being made and what machines they're being made on, mm-hmm. you know, so that they can gather a better knowledge base to then be able to produce some type of, you know, standard. So we are doing it just indirectly, I think. Um, but uh, what I would uh, hope for is, you know, on the comment of shaping the next, you know, decades of, of additively manufactured orthopedic implants, um, to make sure that the standard doesn't necessarily constrict, you know, because, you know, for example, any number of whether you're using Haas or, you know, whatever, whatever machinery you're, you're using, right. You're able to, you know, determine, um, so a vendor manufacturer is able to determine uh, tool speeds, feeds, you know, feed rates, um, different tool choices, different fixturing. There's a lot of options for how you can potentially manufacture a part, right. You Mm -hmm. know, um, and similarly in additive, you know, I want still, you know, folks to be able to have that freedom, you know, for those who understand it, right? We just got to make sure that everything is tested and evaluated before it goes in a patient. Yeah. You know, because I, I would hate for a, uh, a standard or, or, or specified, you know, criteria to be um, administered or, or, or controlled such that, you know, you wouldn't be able to... Um, you know, it would limit like your parameter set, like for, I don't know, whatever, let's say three systems, you know, DMP 350 or whatever. It's, you know, right. the FDA says, it's, you know, you can only use, you know, this, you know, laser intensity for this, you know, whatever. And you're, you're like, right. You're, you're building, don't get to that level of scrutiny. No, right? no, no. Yeah. I, I would want to make sure that we, we don't get to, to that level. And, and so it really just comes down to making sure that, um, you know, the manufacturer and, and, you know, us really being the manufacturer, I mean, the you know, supplier, um, work together to make sure that uh, parts are properly evaluated, mm-hmm. you know, throughout mm-hmm. that process. Today's episode is sponsored by 3D Systems. Here, Sam Green, 3D Systems Professional Printer Category Manager, discusses advancements in polymer materials to increase AM repeatability, productivity, and part performance know that 3D printing has been moving for some time now from a predominantly prototyping tool to a manufacturing tool. And the real end game really is for 3D printing not to replace traditional manufacturing, but to support that adding breadth and depth and agility and complexity to where it's uh, really required. SLS is a great contender for producing uh, plastic, true plastic parts, thermoplastics in PA12, nylons. However, the drawback of many thermoplastic technologies has been the process by which these individual layers of the parts are melded together. So large thermal discrepancies can occur typically across either a single part where you display different mechanical properties at one end of the part and different mechanical properties at the other end. 
And the same is true if you have a batch of parts. But what we've really done, we've created the new SLS 380 3D printer. And this is designed to deliver consistent and repeatable parts. So we've installed eight individually controlled heaters. And then we've installed a high resolution IR camera that's able to take 100,000 thermal data samples from within the build chamber every second. So the system's algorithm is able to quickly identify any areas where there's high thermal gradient uh, or very low thermal gradient, and then it immediately adjusts the duty cycle of the relevant heater to remove that thermal discrepancy and ensure a more consistent sintering process. And ultimately, this uh, temperature stability creates significantly higher part yields and ultimately a more efficient process and even lower part costs. You guys have talked a lot about advancing the science and one of those areas is photopolymer resins. Can you just elaborate on how you're leveraging that to deliver production grade part performance there? We've been able to develop a series of novel patented chemistries and these have really opened the door to the first true production ready photopolymers for additive manufacturing. So we started this process for the figure four 3D printer with our tough black 20 material. This along with other production grade materials that we've released since then, all these materials are tested to demonstrate that they can retain most of their mechanical properties, typically up to eight years indoor and two years outdoor. 30 years ago, 3D Systems invented the SLA 3D printing uh, technology, uh, which uses a vector laser to scan and cure resins in a vat. In contrast to that, the figure four, it still uses a vat, of course, but it replaces that laser with a projector-based imaging system that cures a whole layer at a time rather than point by point. So the great advantage of this is, of course, uh, speed. Figure four is unique in that it is a non-contact membrane technology, which means the part does not come into contact with a transparent layer at the bottom of the print tray. So the end game has always been to port over the revolutionary material advances we've made from the projector-based figure four to our SLA range, such as the Pro X800. Back in July, we launched the first of these materials. It's called the Acura AMX Rigid Black, a high-strength uh, production-grade SLA material with really good environmentally stabilized properties that can withstand years of indoor, outdoor UV and humidity exposure. It's ideal for large one-to-one -one scale automotive, consumer durable mounts, frames, jigs, fixtures, or internal frames in things like such as uh, white goods. But taken together, we now have a very powerful solution mix when it comes to resins. If you need small batch quantities of tens to hundreds of thousands of production grade plastic parts, the figure four is an excellent solution. And now if you need large one-to-one -one scale, large production parts, we now have our SLA platform with the first in our range of Acura AMX materials. To learn more about long-term resin performance and industrial scale SLS workflow solutions, visit mytct.co forward slash 3D systems pod or mytct.co forward slash pod SLS. Before we finish up here, though, I do want to uh, touch on kind of where you are uh, in the patient-specific um, implant space, mm -hmm. right? And, and I'm, I'm curious, you mentioned before where you're making a decision between what's additive versus subtractive. Do you end up making subtractively manufactured uh, uh, patient-specific implants? No, um, okay. at, at this point where all of our um, uh, patient-specific devices are um, additive manufactured, but um, there is a certain processes that have conventional um, 
uh, processes built into that. Sure, right? there's different machining processes. Correct, yeah. And so the base, the, the base volume or so um, in all of our patient-specific devices right now are um, 3D printed, but then we go through um, this several processes of finishing um, necessary there. You know, uh, there are many different types of patient-specific devices out there. And, you know, one of the things that I feel that um, regulation has started to catch up on is, you know, what is the difference between a custom-made device? What is the difference between a patient-matched device? And um, why is there a difference and um, whatnot? In our industry right now, those terms are probably interchangeable. Um, and, yeah, colloquially for sure. Yeah, and and really, when you start getting into the regulation, you then start to understand. Oh, well, there is a difference between these, and there are different um, regulations that I need to abide by. And for us, um, uh, you know, in design and manufacturing, we need to go ahead and understand those regulations to make sure that we're producing products that. Um, you know, are meeting all the appropriate compliance. Do you mind walking through kind of what that process looks like, like in comparison to a, a serialized, uh, additive manufactured uh, implant? Because I'm, I'm just curious about that because that's not a space I, I deal with. Yeah, for sure. To me, I see um, kind of three tranches of, of product right now. Uh, a serialized manufactured device is something common to mm -hmm. what we've been doing for the last um, where you'd have let's say you know different sizes maybe millimeter increment heights right mm -hmm. and you might have a bit of a um, kind of boundary dimension for producing these skews sure. yep. um, on the far side of that there's what we call a custom-made device and custom-made device is something that essentially doesn't exist until there's a, a need for it um, there's, uh, let's say you have a patient who has a suffi sufficiently rare disease or uh, diagnosis, um, and there's nothing off the shelf to go ahead and treat that. I think of someone who maybe the seven-year-old who got into motor vehicle accident and is missing 50% of their femur, you know? Um, mm -hmm. I, I bring that up because that's a very real case that oh, I yeah, had absolutely. earlier this year. And, and there's just nothing off the shelf that's going to go ahead and treat that. Um, and so that I am allowed through regulations to make a particular custom-made device for that. Um, but then there is in the middle what we call a patient match device. And a patient match device still has um, uh, that bounding box of serialized dimension or serialized products. Um, um, but within that particular bounding box, you're allowed to go ahead and edit particular variables that you've um, uh, you've laid out in your market submission um, to fit the patient um, uh, individually. So, um, you know, it, it, I see it as a blend between those serialized production devices and those custom-made devices, which are diametrically opposed at opposite ends of the spectrum, and a patient-matched device is somewhere in the middle. Um, I believe that that is where our industry is headed um, over the next five, 10 years. And, you know, there are a lot of great companies out there who are concentrating on software um, for uh, creating some of these and making the workflows a little bit better, um, ourselves included. And we have some proprietary software that we utilize. Um, 
there are other industries that are concentrating on how to set up these manufacturing cells um, for making these uh, more personalized devices. Um, and then, um, as I mentioned, um, FDA is doing uh, a better job at um, providing regulations around some of these devices. Um, and, and, you know, I feel strongly that that is where our, um, uh, our industry is headed. And, you know, I, I, I welcome the challenge because there are a lot of unanswered questions, but um, I feel that if we really ask ourselves the critical questions, um, then we can go ahead and get to that point and potentially get better outcomes for um, the end patient. Yeah, if you don't mind just touching on kind of how your design process between those diametrically proposed, you know, types of devices, you know, differ, right? So like, for example, with a, you know, serialized, I know that I've got a design team, I'm going through, like we talked about earlier, going through that design process, I'm trying to evaluate the device, you know, optimize for DFM and all this, and then end up finally producing, you know, uh, you know a range of sizes that we think are appropriate for majority of the market, mm -hmm. right? We can mm -hmm. go through that entire design process. We have a lot of, you know, we touched on some manufacturing, uh, I guess, uh, challenges along the way with that certainly a lot of manufacturing challenges whether it's post-processing or or, um, or what have you and then the, the quality space the regulatory space how does that differ or maybe pick out a couple of specific items how that differs for a patient uh, specific device well I, I kind of see them operating in uh, two different ways when you do a more serialized device for me um, you start off with a concept that you internally already develop you mm -hmm. and then you present that out to the um, let's say the clinical customer um, for a patient specific device um, I don't start the design until the clinical customer comes to me and says hey this is what we have going on and I'm designing it for an individualized uh, person um, so once I have that data then I have um, some of my main uh, or my main design input, right? And what are you getting? You're getting like a CT or are you getting MRI? I get CT. Okay. Um, we can also work with MRI, but CT is the um, kind of industry standard right sure. now for getting that done. Um, whereas in the serialized production, you're taking the 95th percentile, right? You're trying to go ahead and find the um, object that fits 95%. Um, whereas in a patient-specific device, you're trying to find the product that fits that one individual. Yeah, yeah. So um, on that note, you're like, how does your actual engineering process? I mean, I know you said you have proprietary software, but mm. when you have that CT, like for example with femur, right? You have to come up with an implant that replaces half a femur, right? Right. <laughs> um, and and for you, you said it was a seven-year-old. My goodness. I mean, how does that scale? Or I mean, we'll can get into that in a second, but um, I mean, you're you're coming up with. Uh, the, you know, where a bone would be, mm, right? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, are, are you considering, uh, you know, bone density at all? Are you considering, um, you know, uh, you know, where you're loading, you know, right. I mean, what, I mean, what are those considerations? Because especially when you're doing it for a one-off, you know, I mean, that's tough. A hundred percent. In in some instances for me, um, the customer requirements are easier on a patient-specific device because I have that, one stakeholder who's the okay. patient. Yeah. I have that one stakeholder who's the clinical surgeon, um, and I can go ahead and focus all of that. Um, but we do um, do a pretty deep dive into, you know, what are the patient needs? You know, um, we take age, weight, 
bone density into a factor. Um, we started looking at DEXA scans to look at bone density there, a region of interest. Um, so that way we can figure out um, what are the appropriate loading conditions there. Um, uh, you know, I mentioned age, um, you know, that particular patient is still growing, you know, yeah. what do we need to do there? And then um, in addition to that, you know, um, you know, what is the surgeon's operative approach? How do we um, uh, make this device such that it's easier for the surgeon to implant it um, and get a, a more successful clinical outcome? Um, and then we look at um, some of the uh, third-party components that are going into that. One key thing that we've needed to do or that we do on um, uh, the far end of the spectrum of custom-made devices is we find that, um, you know, there's the device, but we also need to figure out supplemental fixation as well. Mm -hmm. um, and and it, it's not all one company that can do it all, right? We partner out with um, other individuals, other um, organizations, I should say, um, to figure out total solutions for this one surgery. Um, whereas in a serialized device, you're expected to go ahead and have that all figured out already for the 95th percentile. Um, you're expected to know, well, here's a supplemental fixation that you're going to use. And by the way, we've already provided it to you. Whereas um, on a custom-made device, you may not necessarily have that, or you may have a surgeon who just prefers to use some different type of supplemental fixation. And you need to lay out all of those type of customer requirements in the span of 30 minutes, um, which can be daunting for someone who's trying to do this for the first time. Um, over many, many years of, of trial and error, I, I feel like we've developed a good process, um, but that's something that is never taught in university. Mm -hmm. How do you go ahead and tease out all of those stakeholder needs and convert them into you know, design inputs? Um, and specifications, right? Um, and being able to do that is going to be an essential aspect of how we transition to some of these more patient-specific devices in the future. And I think is going to be a critical um, a crux, if you will, um, uh, or a, a, a particular um, focal point for the adoption of this type of um, uh, thought process or technology um, um, if we do intend as an industry to go towards these personalized devices. Um, you know, um, as I mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, there, this is not a golden bullet. Much like additive manufacturing, there is a decision algorithm that you need to make between a conventional manufactured product and an additive manufactured product. If you're making a screw, I'm going to make it on a Swiss machine mm -hmm. all day, every day, because I, you know, get them for pennies on the dollar. Um, the same thing is, is true for these personalized devices. Um, is a skew of 64 uh, vertebral body devices good enough um, to go ahead and treat this individual patient? Sometimes it depends on the patient, right? Um, what's their um, etiology? How are they presenting to the surgeon? What is the overall um, uh, situation that we're intending to concentrate on here? Um, and if the answer is it's a general routine surgery, 
The answer is you're probably better off with those 54 SKUs um, because of, you know, turnaround time and cost to the, um, uh, to the hospital, um, which we didn't get to touch on, but uh, to me, that's one of my major stakeholders. Um, but if it's a complex and rare disease state, and you're looking at maybe an NBA player who has come down with um, a cancerous tumor, um, uh, you know, then absolutely personalized device is necessary there um, because the off-the-shelf devices don't meet uh, that particular need. So I, I think we need to go ahead and um, critically think about our decision processes um, and say, you know, is additive necessary in this particular application? And for the future, um, is a personalized device necessary for this application? Um, and the answer is not always yes. The answer is not always no. Um, it's it depends. Yeah, it seems to me from a uh, you know a design standpoint, it's everything going on. It's, it's like you know for a serialized product, comparing it to something that is individual. It's like taking that timeline and, and putting it in like a hyperchamber. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's what it sounds like to me. Yeah, it, it, and we still meet many of the, uh, if not all of the um, requirements for. Um, a serialized device. I mean, I'm still going through um, design controls process. I'm still going through ISO 10993, mechanical testing, um, uh, powder handling, all of those things that you would see in a serialized device, but I've, I've done it in such a way that we've compacted that process, right? Do you end up going through a prototyping process or you just rely mostly on FEA? So a combination of both. It, it depends on the um, individual product. If it's something that is more routine, and I hate to use the word routine, but sure. um, yeah. if it's a- something, In terms of loading conditions. Yeah, yeah. Then um, we'll go ahead and just rely on our computer-aided design and manufacturing uh, softwares. But um, if it is something that's a little bit more out there, undoubtedly, mm -hmm. um, that prototyping is helpful um, not just for us who are designing and manufacturing it, but also providing that to um, uh, our clinical team who are going to be utilizing it to make sure that they understand what the three spaces and um, the uh, intended use of that device in the OR. So not only do we uh, produce the implant, but we also produce the anatomic model um, and ancillary devices to go with that. Mm -hmm. So that way a surgeon can... Um, uh, you know, utilize that in the OR um, for pre-planning if you needed. Yeah, it, it feels like, you know, where, you know, I, I've, for example, uh, have been able to learn, you know, throughout the process of, of developing additively manufactured devices, you know, that would not be, a, you know, I, I wouldn't be able to do that if I was doing something patient-specific, right? So I have to have all this knowledge base, you know, beforehand going into that. Absolutely. I feel like there's a, a much uh, smaller range of error you know, oh, absolutely. Right. Yeah. So you know, that's another thing. It's like everything is just it's like you take, you know, a serialized device development cycle and then you put it through a hipping process. No, <laughs> kind of, you know, put, put that and then some extra pressure in there. Um, but uh, it, it's uh, I'm really interested in that process. We can keep you know talking about this, you know, for forever. But I do think kind of in, in, you know, kind of we can finish up here in closing that. Um, you know, there are, you know, different uh, manufacturing regulatory considerations that uh, need to be taken when we're thinking about 
Uh, um, and certainly cost considerations that we need to be thinking about uh, making something more specific. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I think that it's a, it's a cool, uh, I think, uh, how do I put it? It is very cool, but I think it's a, it's a cool idea to have um, perhaps like, a, you know, additive manufacturing machine of, of some kind, whether it's DMLS or, or, mm -hmm. or EB. Uh, adjacent to the OR and like, oh, you can <laughs> pop something out and, you know, process it right there on the spot. But that it's just um, for a number of reasons, uh, I think unrealistic and, and maybe not even worthwhile, I think from a cost standpoint. Oh, yeah. And, and what you're touching on there is, you know, the uh, point of care push, which I think has mm -hmm. been another, um, you know, hot topic in our industry is, um, how do we get um, manufacturing at the point of care uh, mm -hmm. facilities? And, you know, yeah, I, this is another one that I talk for hours on, but, you know, uh, one thing that I feel is, you know, that a lot of people miss is OR space, hospital space is some of the most expensive um, uh uh, footprints yeah real estate from whatever square, you put it. Yeah, yeah. from a square foot perspective you know uh, we'd be talking about hundreds if not thousands of dollars per square foot of um uh, you know office space and you know when i can go ahead and potentially set up a manufacturing facility probably about 10 miles away and service and and provide that same output um you know, and, and that needs to be the cost benefit that um, we as uh, we, we kind of go through is um, while I do think there is some validity in, um, you know, point of care manufacturing, the question is what type of point of care manufacturing? Is it rapid prototyping for, you know, uh, polymer devices, uh, potentially? Um, is it a class three device, uh, fully implantable? not likely at this point, you know, um, because there's a lot of relation that um, maybe some of these point of care facilities haven't, um, uh, or healthcare facilities haven't thought of just yet, and we haven't developed regulation for, um, and we're still off, right? You know, that then asks, that begins the question is, who is the manufacturer of record at that point? Mm -hmm. um, and um, how do we handle that um, uh, as we go through, uh, I think there is some type of middle ground, but, you know, um, it's not as easy as, um, you know, setting up a 3d printer, um, having an engineer there, um, who designs something for you and then boom, you pop it into the 3d printer and then, uh, within an hour, put it into a patient. We can't at this moment produce safe and effective devices. Um, but, you know, with, people who lead the industry um, uh, and, and concentrate on those questions, I think there can be something that um, is attainable. Now, who knows if it's, you know, uh, now, um, we know that there are some companies out there who have set up facilities, um, um, uh, or if it's five, 10, or 20 years from now. It depends on the product that you're intending to produce. So in closing, then, if you don't think that's necessarily, you know, the, the direction for orthopedic implants, where do you think they're going? I mean, you touched a bit on kind of the hybrid between, um, you know, serialized and, and patient specific, but where, where do you think? Just take, take a stab in the dark, Steve. <laughs> where are we, where are we 10 years from now? That's a lofty question. Um, 
you know, I, I fully invested myself in patient specifics, you know? Um, so uh, <laughs> if I were a gambling man, I'd go ahead and put it there. Um, uh, you know, you may argue that there's some other people who are gonna say it's point of care. Um, and then you may argue on with some other people that would say it's gonna be ro robotics um, or um, AI trying to go ahead and overlay uh, computer models um, into the surgery suite. And I think all of those avenues have validity to them, but it just depends on, you know, uh, money is king, really, right? Um, you know, what can you make for uh, the least amount that will give the most benefit to the customer that will um, get the highest adoption rate? Um, and for me, you know, things like robotics and AI are high cost. Um, which maybe not all facilities can afford. Um, now, we've seen huge advents in robotics that um, uh, have been instrumental in, in, in um, improving the quality of care, um, uh, but not all facilities can uh, adopt that. Um, maybe something that is a little bit lower bar, um, like uh, uh, patient-specific cutting guides or so, um, we, we've started to see those emerge a lot more, um, and that potentially can be coupled with a point-of-care uh, thought process because um, those could be considered maybe class one, class two devices um, with a uh, lower uh, risk profile to the patient that potentially could be controlled at a um, healthcare facility. So what are your thoughts? Yeah, um, so I think that uh, just touching on you know that great point that you brought up, I completely agree that I think uh, you know custom, if you will, instrumentation mm -hmm. for sure. I think we're going to see more of that. I think we're going to see more additively manufactured instruments. Um, AM just lends itself to that, right? It really does. Yeah, and and, and um, you know we can get into you know how accurate is it, you know, but we're we're for sure on the scale now where we can produce. Um, what accurate enough, you know, plus or minus, we're, get, we're getting to plus or minus, uh, you know, less than a millimeter. You're, yeah. you're certainly going to be more accurate in that case than, yeah. right, than, than most, uh, I would say the accuracy of most surgeons, you know? Um, and so that I think is going to be very effective, you know, maybe not the implants, you know, because maybe the efficacy isn't there relative to the cost, but um, certainly I think from an instrumentation standpoint, where that I will, I will definitely think we'll be seeing more of. Mm -hmm. um, I think that generally, um, I mean, we're seeing it certainly already. I think we're feeling it, you know, uh, personally, that uh, the consolidation, um, you know, where you have more, uh, you've got larger and larger, you know, hospital systems controlling more hospitals. You have, um, you know, uh, you know, parring down to individual vendors, um, you know, the cost for, or rather the, uh, the price that um, different hospital systems are willing to pay for products. It just keeps going lower and lower and lower and lower, right? Right now it's cost-effective enough for um, companies like, you know, Forweb and Osseus and other, I would say mid, mid-size, I think it's fair, mm -hmm. uh, companies to exist within this space. Um, but I think we're moving in the direction where it, it's gonna continue to consolidate within the larger uh, companies. And I think we're gonna be moving toward where uh, most of the market just ends up going the route and we're, we're really mostly there already where, um, you know, what uh, majority of implants are still just peak. It's still just plastic, you know, mm -hmm. they're just, you know, serialized plastic implants, 
does the job vast majority of the time. And I think we'll just keep heading in that direction when it comes to uh, devices across the board. And then there will be a very secluded specific space that I think is just going to be um, intensified where, like you said, we'll be getting into patient, you know, closer and closer to patient specific devices uh, frequently within a small population. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think it's going to be really a kind of, um, uh, maybe getting into kind of haves and have nots, you know, <laughs> um, there, but uh I think that's where it's gonna go. And uh, there will be, there are already, uh, I think a select few um, folks who do what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's gonna become even smaller. Um, right, we're a very incestuous group here mm-hmm. in the orthopedic mm-hmm. medical devices, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, that's what I think. It, it is possible to uh, expedite um, the timeline down a little bit. But I think with, you know, patient-specific devices, at a certain point, there's only so fast things can go and how fast you want them to go in terms of a, you know, a turnaround. I mean, what's the, the average turnaround, or not even average, like what is an example of a turnaround for a patient-specific device? Yeah, I mean, we're down to about um, three to four weeks, three to five weeks, um, mm-hmm. you know, depending on the design complexity, um, uh, you know, but always at the forefront of, of that timeline is, am I still producing safe and effective devices? And for me, that is an unmovable goal that I cannot um, uh, sacrifice, right? Um, I will not push out a device that I do not believe is safe and effective. Um, and, and you know, we're always trying to play that balancing game. You know, how do we go ahead and um, take turnaround time and take safety and efficacy um, and, you know, pull the levers and push the button so that way we get the optimal balance of them. <laughs> which, by the way, there's also the third corner of that little triangle, which is cost, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> big, big corner. The big corner, <laughs> yeah. And, and that triangle balances it out, right? You know, cost, uh, turnaround time, and uh, quality of the device. So I took the very, I think, uh, easy, if you will, route in terms of a uh, shooting a projection because like oh yeah that's a great trend to pick you know it's an easy one so i'll i'll, I'll shoot a, a shot i think that um and this one i guess probably is going to be along the same line but a little bit more risky i think that we're going to be moving more into um robotics and navigation right because mm-hmm. we already are but you know to the point where and I, and I know other other folks have talked about this to the point where you have you can have a surgeon in miami you know operating oh you know a machine in you know california mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. like that um, I think we're going to be doing that and, uh, and, and having, I, I don't know other than, um, I, I guess, like we talked about where you have additively manufactured instrument, um, potentially playing a role there where, where additive plays a part, yep. you know? Um, but, uh, you know, I would say that would be, you know, kind of my shot where, um, and that kind of goes into the specialization of everything else. I mean, surgeons are very specialized, mm-hmm. certainly. Um, but I think we're going to get to a point where, it, I don't know, you're going to have your, it's like everything is going to end up consolidating, right? You're, right? you end up having, you know, you're 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 very very um, skilled and, and specific surgeons, and then you're going to have surgeons that are able to operate in a different capacity. Let's say where mm-hmm. they're reliant on a patient-specific instrument that guides them in, or that combines with a, a robot and navigation, and then they can potentially operate from their couch, you know, or something like right. that. I, I could definitely see us moving in that direction. Yeah. So anyway, I'll, that that's what I think. And you know, just this last topic, I think for in order for you know 
engineers and moreover in that organizations to survive in our current industry, we need to have a level of flexibility and adoption um, that is, um, you know, at the forefront of what we do and how we operate to keep up with these type of technologies. Because um, otherwise, we may not be here um, in the coming decades. Um, but I, I look forward to the challenge. Thank you.